This is Alexander Sadig and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. You know, I, I don't think that there's any textual evidence uh, in this book to suggest that Aurora is not a flat. Right? Do we, <laughs> do, do we know for certain that that... It's, it's a, actually riding. It's a it's a it's a flat disc riding on four elephants, and the elephants uh-huh. are standing on a turtle. <laughs> okay, but wouldn't wouldn't Bailey have seen that as he was watching the the the, the planet from space? So that that must have all been faked up for him. That's right. They faked yeah. that all up. <laughs> that was all. That was all the simulation. Come on, Joseph, wake up. <laughs> uh. Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 25 of season three of the Stars End podcast. This week, we're going to continue our reading of the Robots of Dawn with sections 13 through 16. When last we left Elijah, he was at Centerix Gremionis's establishment and decided that it was time to get in touch with the head of the Robotics Institute, Keldon Amadiro. Uh, so let's make a phone call, basically, is what happens first. They make the call. They don't get Amadiro. They get his assistant roboticist, Sisis, or I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but then I never am with any of these names, who tries to gatekeep Elijah. And Elijah does that thing that Asimov has his characters do so often, which is to bluster and bully and threaten until he gets what he wants. It actually leads me to wonder whether Asimov actually used that as a strategy in life, you know, said, do you know who you're talking to? And this is Isaac Asimov. And I, I I wonder whether he did that or not. There were a ton of people who tried to get away with that nonsense in the 80s. I the remember. Bluster, the bluster and... Yes. And, uh, I actually had an, uh, an incident which still embarrasses me to this day, which I'm going to take a second to talk about. It's <laughs> that I used to work as a waiter. My dad was in, the, uh, was in the restaurant business. And when I was a college student, when I had vacations, I would work as a waiter. Working as a waiter was in New York City was great. I mean, you made a lot of money and most of it was kind of tax-free, so... So that was pretty nice. <laughs> if there are any IRS agents listening, just ignore that. So I worked and I, I knew a lot of the waiters who worked at these places. And then I, I went back to school. And I one day I went into one of the restaurants and there was someone I knew. And I was 21 and I ordered a, a, an alcoholic beverage. And he asked me for ID. And I, I went for my ID and I said, don't you remember me? And or but I think I phrased it more like, don't you know who I am? And mm-hmm. he just went into this whole like, well, I don't care who the fuck you are. You know, <laughs> like I was like, no, 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 no. We know each other because I used to work here. Not like I'm some sort of celebrity, which I, of course, I'm not. But uh, I still well, I'm not still then. cringe about that. Well, yeah, except except for in podcast in, in uh, Asimov podcast world, <laughs> major, <laughs> major celebrity. Anyway. So Elijah bullies roboticist Sisis and and he tells him he wants to give Amadiro a chance to speak in his own defense. And we start to hear about Auroran slander laws, which is going to come up a lot in this chapter. Apparently, they're a lot more sensitive to slander, or so they say, than Earth people are. And they're accusing Elijah repeatedly of slandering them, which actually he kind of is, but whatever. Um, But it works. The bullying works and Amadiro will see him. Uh, but Elijah says, I'm coming over. I don't want to do any phone calls. And uh, on the way out, he reminds uh, Gremionis that he should assault Gladio next time he sees her. <laughs> in case he forgot. So they're out in the open and we notice the storm is really brewing. 
Uh, and Elijah is forced to admit on the car ride over to the robots who are amazed at his powers of deduction that he's really guessing and just going on gut feel. But I think it's an interesting point because the robots are, are wholly incapable of acting on gut feel. They don't have any guts to feel. And Elijah kind of gets by mostly on that until he finally circles around to getting to the truth. So they get to the administration building. Elijah notes, notes that it has bureaucrat decor, something I think we're all familiar with. And Elijah notes that it's not just on Earth, it's on Aurora too. A couple of things come up that I was wondering about. One of them is that there's this thing called a tingle field that Elijah has to wait for them to lower. And one might think that it's Chekhov's tingle field. <laughs> but in fact, it's not because we never hear about it again. And then there's a long disquisition about the spiral staircase that he has to go up and how to it, it, you step on it and it corkscrews its way up like some sort of weird escalator. Elijah is very interested in how it goes down and what happens at the end. And again, this spiral staircase is just sort of we have a long, long, long talk about it and it never really impacts the story in any in any way. So finally, they meet Amadiro. He's very conciliatory, but there's lots of wolf in sheep's clothing language that Asimov uses to let us know that he is not really as nice as he's trying to seem. In fact, he has already sent Centirix Grimionis's memo to the chairman and tells Elijah, you'll be gone by morning. So you can just pretty much give up on your investigation. We have a long, somewhat philosophical conversation between Elijah and Amadiro. Uh, they fence around verbally. They talk a lot about slander. Really, Amadiro has all the cards, and he does keep sending little hungry glances over at Daniil, which, uh, you know, maybe that's going to make Elijah jealous. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he does finally grandly agree to answer questions, so they talk about the Institute, the settlement of space, the, the different theories from the globalists and the humanists, some things that we've heard before, but we're hearing it now in Amadiro's words. Um, he talks about the concept of getting scientists to cooperate. Again, all stuff that we've heard before. We go into spacer psychology, and they get into this very weird conversation about building truly humaniform robots in order to settle planets. And Elijah keeps pressing him on, well, don't they have to have children? And Matero says, yeah, 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 we thought of that. We're going to have robots that can kind of have children. And then the children are going to kind of grow up. And Elijah is sort of like, well, then why do you need people? If you have these, I, the whole the whole conversation was long and strange, but I guess that's kind of what this book has really been about. They talk about oh, he mentions that he knows how attached Gladia was to Jander. He says he talked to Vasilia and and uh, Gremionis. He says her notion of what constitutes a husband is not necessarily Auroran. Elijah's trying really hard. Uh, he mentions the lack of true robot equality. They, they fence back and forth on that a little bit. Uh, really, Amadiro is just playing with him. And then we have another tedious conversation about how Amadiro can't have him removed because the robots will protect him. He says the robots would even go so far as to kill him if they had to, to protect Elijah, which I thought was a bluff, but the robots backed him up on it. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's really within the spirit of the three laws as currently understood that they would kill Amadiro to prevent him from having Elijah removed from the building. That, that was it. Yeah. But, but maybe backing him up is, is, um, well, maybe, governed maybe by the first law, maybe they're lying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, finally, Amadiro goes so far as to threaten earth. He says that if Aurora and see earth people settling the galaxy, uh, they, they, they will not be happy. He more or less threatens that they'll destroy earth. If, if they find humans wandering around the galaxy. And uh, the last thing Asimov says about Amadiro is he's all wolf now. And then we have another bathroom scene. <laughs> and this time Elijah insists on bringing the robots into the bathroom with him. Uh, another long conversation in the bathroom. They look around for bugs. It kind of comes down to a bet that Elijah has with the robots. This comes back to the gut feel thing where Elijah wants to know if the robots think Amadir will be waiting for them outside when they're done. And the robots both think Amadir would have wandered off and had some underling come. And Elijah says, no, no, he's gone this far. He's going to be there. And they open the door and there is Amadir. Once again, Elijah's instincts 
are better than the robot's logic. Amadiro wants to take him on a tour. He offers him a meal. Finally, finally, Elijah realizes that Amadiro is delaying for some reason. And he goes, no, 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 I've got to go. He, he hears lightning. He hears the sounds of the storm, which at first, amusingly, Amadiro pretends he doesn't hear and orders the robots to pretend they don't hear because now he's in full gaslighting mode on Elijah. And Elijah runs out the door, but it's too late. The storm is there, the much heralded storm. And Elijah freaks out and runs back into the building because he's really never been in a big storm before. So the robots are able to coax him out of the building and go to the car, although it is pretty hard. He's in terror the whole time. Uh, they start driving around. And it turns out that uh, the car has been sabotaged and it crashes. And Elijah realizes that it's not him that they want. He, 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 he fully believes, and I think he's correct, that it was Amadira's people or robots who sabotaged the vehicle. But what they want is to kneel. Like they don't have, they, they want humaniform robots. Jander is now deactivated. Daniil's the only one left. And they want to get Daniil. And he, he actually asks the question that you would ask, which is, well, he was just there. Why didn't they just grab him while he was there? The answer being that they wanted to get Elijah disabled. And that way he wouldn't be able to resist them grabbing Daniil. And what better way to get him disabled than to send him out in a storm? So Elijah realizes he has to send the robots away so that Daniil does not get captured by the Robotics Institute. And he convinces them to go away with the understanding that Giscard will come back and get him once Daniil is safe. And the robots do indeed leave. They leave Elijah there, although he is in terrible distress. He has to pretend that he's not. Well, why the robots are fooled, I'm not sure. And then a whole bunch more robots arrive. The robots from the Institute arrive. And Elijah lies to them, tells them that Daniil and Giscard went back to the Institute when, in fact, they went in exactly the opposite direction. He gets the robots to leave. And he decides that he'd better not stay with the car. And he goes out into the woods in the middle of this massive storm. Um, and he's really kind of having an episode and uh, a really hard time. And finally, uh, down goes Fraser, as they say. And he slips into unconsciousness at the end of the chapter. Uh, he wakes up to find, well, actually, actually, while he's lying there, He's thinking about Giscard finding him and he goes, I, I knew he would find me. Uh, and as it turns out, he was only unconscious for 10 to 20 minutes. He wakes up at Gladia's house. The first thing he wants to know is, is Daniil safe? And she sort of gets irritated by his repeated questioning. Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's safe. He's safe. But that's the first thing he thinks about. They went to Gladia's place because it was closest. She actually makes him chicken soup in, in probably the most uh, Jewish part of all foundation Gladia makes elijah chicken soup to uh, to heal him up they have a conversation she cries he holds her it's getting kind of sexy he's pretty tired though he goes to bed uh he he has that elusive thought that we've referred to a couple of times but he can't remember what it is and then Gladia arrives and even though he's pretty weak the big sex scene happens it takes about a, it's about a tasteful page and a half, I think. But it's certainly a departure from the Asimov of the 1940s and the 1950s. And then while he's lying there afterwards, the thought comes back again. And that's where the section ends. So uh, I've, I've done a, a fairly short review, especially of the last couple of chapters. I, I, I certainly cut down a lot of the, the kind of wordy conversation that really doesn't matter all that much. But the key points... You know, they go to the Institute. Amadiro threatens everybody. They leave out into the storm. Elijah realizes that the Institute is after Daniil. He sends Daniil away, wakes up at Gladia's. They do it. And that's the end of the section we have. Uh, I guess we kind of knew that was coming between Elijah and Gladia. That was, that was the long delayed will they, won't they? And they, they finally did. So there's the action you wanted, Joseph. They have a, a rainstorm, a chase, sex. What more could what more could we ask from a, yeah, a it, section it, of Asimov? It actually okay, but I'm going to counterpoint that because it, it okay. First of all, it kind of amazed me that this 
the the um, chapter in the car, it amazes me just how much of that is happening entirely inside of, of Bailey's head. I mean, it is all he's thinking about stuff and he's trying to figure stuff out, but really nothing is happening. So we've gone from people sitting together having conversations to Bailey just thinking things now. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, he's really wound up by that storm. It's true. Like he he is he is quivering like a three year old, uh, just afraid of this storm. And like he when when they're pulling the car up, he's like whimpering and like hiding his head into Daniil's chest and stuff. And it's uh, it's kind of amusing. It's it, amusing. It, I think it's yeah. actually pretty realistic. I yeah, mean, yeah, he's used to being in a controlled environment all the time, and when you know, the first drop of rain comes down when he and the other earth people are out. So they all go running inside immediately. Like nobody, nobody's staying out in the rain. And this is like a full blown lightning thunder and huge rainstorm. So I, I think it was believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believable, but very little happens. Right. I mean, there's an, there's a section, right? Section 60 is Bailey summing up the courage to try to go to the car. And then section 61, they make it to the car and then they sit there talking for a while before they decide where they're going. And then section 62, um, you know, they start going. Bailey's miserable. He thinks about the strips, but then, you know, he has his epiphany about uh, about um, Amadero wanting to get it to Daniil. And then the airfoil breaks. That's section 63. And then section 64 is... Bailey sitting there and thinking about stuff and briefly having a conversation with a couple of robots. And then, you know, 65, he gets out of the car and he wanders around a little bit. I mean, nothing, nothing to me will beat your description from last time about how they, they think about going to the bathroom, they fill up in front of the bathroom, someone goes to the bathroom and then they go have lunch. That's right. (laughs) Well, actually, let me ask you guys about this because I didn't really get, get, uh, two scenes Uh, like i didn't get the bathroom scene here at all like it didn't i i don't understand why there's another bathroom scene it didn't really seem like lige had to go and as far as i can remember he didn't actually go he just went in there and the robots stood with him there and then they debated about whether amadero's hanging out outside and then they left and then number two i also don't understand why he wants to go out in the storm at all like why, ba- why bailey wants to go out in the storm yeah yeah like after the robots are gone why oh. does he wander off into the woods i i didn't really understand the motivation for for either of that okay well i i think i think the bathroom scene was because Amadiro suggested, and it was one of the many delaying tactics that that he, that, that Asimov was trying to um, w- was trying to establish. I don't know, John. Okay, okay. right. I, I think also maybe Bailey was trying to gather his thoughts as to what was going on, and he wanted some privacy. Okay, and that's why he brought the robots in, and then he tried vainly to figure out whether the room was bugged, and realized he would have no idea what an Auroran bug would look like in any case. Again, I I do get the feeling that Asimov did not plan this story out very much. Things like the tingle field felt to me like something that he was thinking about using and then just went, eh, I haven't got any use for that. But I already wrote it down. So, you know, I'm not crossing anything out. That's right. Because that that would be editing. That would be rewriting. And we don't do that. Right. And then the the spiral staircase, again, it's just a very long discussion of this spiral staircase. Like what? Yeah. Like what? What was that? that? <laughs> yeah. Well, but okay. So here he's talking about an escalator, but there was also that scene in Prelude where, you know, they, um, you know, they basically ha- talk about the elevatorless elevator where they, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's just, I don't know. That's true. But at world least, building. At- at least with those gravitic lifts, it gets it gets tied in a little bit to the whole notion of you know, the breakdown of, mm-hmm. of scientific okay. development, right? So that's, it's sort of tied in. This this escalator, it's just like, I and and I, by the way, I, I had a hard time picturing what the hell he's talking about. Like, it, it's an escalator that pops out suddenly from the floor and like reaches up to the next I, level. I had the impression that it was a corkscrew, like it's, a, like, okay. like a, like a yeah, spiral was, circus yeah. that just turns. And as it turns, it 
you just naturally go up yeah but then it of course it has to un- I mean, it's a terrible design because yeah it has to unwind in order to go back and oh we have up ones and down ones and like who is designing these things I, I don't, <laughs> well the aurorans are supposed to be so advanced <laughs> yeah i mean if you if you imagine um you know the, the the stairs on an escalator you know coming out of the bottom and, and then and then returning right. to the top that could kind of fit it's not exactly i don't think that's what he was trying to describe but at it would least you don't fit. have to unwind an escalator that's true <laughs> just keep going that's i will right. point out that by the time he wrote this escalators did exist i mean oh, yeah? it wasn't like he had to invent <laughs> i don't know it, it was but it, but the length yeah. of time that he spends discussing it like what are we doing here i yeah i, I and as far as him leaving the car, so he did have some reasoning for it, although part of it may just have been that he was under so much duress from the storm that he wasn't thinking clearly. Yeah. But I think he, he was worried that when Giscard came back to get him, that the robots would take Giscard prisoner or something. I hmm. oh, so I, I thought that, that maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I, I thought that he was worried that the other robots would realize that Giscard had gone in a different direction and come back to get him as like a bargaining chip or what have you. It's so, really not clear, but no. maybe we can chalk it up to Elijah being so disturbed by the storm that, although why that would, I mean, I would think that somebody that agoraphobic would curl up in a ball under the car seat. Right. Yep, yeah. And not be able to get out, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it serves the story. And again, there is this confidence that he has that Giscard will find him. And he does refer to that. I knew he would find me because this idea that he's figuring out Giscard's mind reading ability is being advanced. And maybe it's to advance that part of the story. And I'm not saying that's a good reason for it. I'm just saying that that, that's kind of what it did in the story, right? It it allowed him to have another data point towards why right. does he believe Giscard's going to find him? Why is he so confident? Well, we we know why, but uh, he doesn't he doesn't know it yet. He's still trying to tease that out of his brain. And of course, it's referred to a couple of times later when he's at Gladia's, where he he has, and it, it, it's going to be it's actually going to make his thing with Gladia more important because as we're going to find out, spoiler alert for the next chapter, he he actually tells her before he falls back asleep, he was there first. And when she repeats that back to him, it's going to trigger and he's going to realize what was going on. Uh, so so uh, I guess that's why he had sex with Claudia, so that they, they, they could do that. <laughs> OK, so here, here's a here's an off the wall theory about the uh, wandering around in the storm. OK, let's hear it. Well, and it actually ties into last last time we were talking about how there's sort of a theme of forgiven love or forbidden love. They get to Gladia's house, and then the first scene is all about Giscard bathing Bailey. And uh, this may be not the very first thing, but it, it's uh, there's a big chunk about uh, Giscard bathing Bailey, and then he's like, you know, relishing this idea of like almost being a being a uh, an infant again, and and he's hearing Gladia's voice, and he thinks it's his mother. But then you get some of the same kind of imagery in the sex scene. Man, I don't want to go there. I just don't. Uh, I, I don't either. But, <laughs> but it, but it's there, and it's 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 uh, hard not to notice it. You know, oh, you know, just you know, you're tired. Don't move. Just rest. And and you know, he it's just almost absolving him of guilt. I don't know. There's there's some, there's something weird going on, and I don't know if that was uh, intentional or not. But it could be to have set up the foreshadowing of the weirdness about the sex scene. Well, they are gonna they are gonna talk about it. Gladia is gonna or Gladia. You and I are both <laughs> persistently pronouncing this name differently. She is gonna talk about what it was that she wanted there, um, and so we can that that's really for next time. But um, there is a there is a discussion of it because of course there is. It's Asimov, so we have to have Gladia and and Elijah sitting at a table having a conversation. So we're getting closer and closer to the resolution of the mystery. Uh, Amadiro is the last major character to be introduced. There will be no more characters introduced. We've now met everybody we need to meet. By the rules of the mystery, we actually now have all the information we need to have to solve the mystery. Uh, I don't know if Asimov really does it that way, 
that sort of Agatha Christie way where you could announce at one point, all right, you've seen all the characters, you have all the facts, now solve the mystery. But in fact, that's where we are. Yeah, because I guess, and I mean, I haven't read ahead, uh, I guess the denouement is all in front of the chairman. Yes, that's correct. They're going to have a big meeting with the chairman. It's not clear whether Elijah is even going to get a chance to speak, but he finally does. And uh, he works his magic there in front of the chairman. And that, of course, is for next time. So I'm not going to, although I love spoiling things, I'm not going to spoil that. And uh, so we're, we're there where we are there with, with all the facts. And uh, so, so Joseph, you, you haven't, you've read this before, but it was a long time ago, right? Yeah. I, I read it when it first came out and then this is my first time coming back to it. And I largely do not remember it. Do you, so you don't remember the conclusion? I do not remember the conclusion. Do you have any theories about what the conclusion is? Um, nothing very well formed. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was mean, trying to get you to go out on a limb there, and it, that failed miserably. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think it's very hard to guess exactly how this is. I mean, it's like, I think at this point you can guess something, but like the whole the whole nature of the dem, the whole story that's going to be told uh, before the chairman, it's, uh, that's really, it, it seems like it would be hard, really hard to deduce yeah. all that. I agree. I don't think Asimov has done the the standard mystery writer thing where they make sure that you have enough yeah. to go on. Um, and of course, we are being led to believe that Amadero is pretty evil. I mean, he actually he threatens to destroy Earth, more or less. Yeah, I, I love it's sort of like a, you know, nice little planet you got there. I sort of say <laughs> it's like, no, trust me, I this is for Earth's benefit. Like I, I want to box earth in and keep you from colonizing anywhere else because if you did colonize anywhere else well then we might have to take some measures yeah i love you guys i love earth people i don't think you smell at all and i will blow your planet to shards that's right <laughs> if i have to for your own good yeah I, I think we've all met people like that people who kind of are friendly but really are are completely not friendly at all Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever threatened to blow up earth to my face. <laughs> yeah, but certainly some certainly people have said bless your heart to you. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is certainly true. Both in person and online. I think I've had that oh my gosh. experience. Well, can we talk a little bit about this this dialogue that uh, Elijah and Amadiro have, which is it, it kind of it gets pretty far away from the murder and it gets into the whole theory of why they want uh, humaniform robots and the whole theory of colonizing the galaxy. And this is where like the fullness of the big picture is introduced i'm right i'm curious what what you guys think about uh amadiro's vision of humaniform robots that can go and make make uh auroras out of the rest of the galaxy well if that's the way you want to do it i understand that this whole idea of making robots that can have little families and baby robots like that just struck me as completely insane yeah. Like if you if you want to have them make an Aurora, you can send a bunch of bulldozer robots, a couple of house prefabricating robots like you don't need humaniform robots to do that. In fact, if anything, it strikes me that you could do it a lot more efficiently with just construction machines. Like, why do you need humaniform robots to do it? And yeah. that whole weird digression into robot families just just it's just like going no that, that well, yeah but you know at in my memory before I reread it this time I was thinking that the whole thing was like somehow that humaniform robots you know are gonna you know build structures that are more suited to the human body or whatever but then it it really gets into the notion of well it doesn't really matter if if humans ever actually go to colonies colonize these places as long as we have genuine auroran culture humanoid robots colonizing the galaxy yeah but it wasn't that bailey who was yeah kind of yeah, coming in from that he, that he angle and but then like uh amadero's like yeah yeah like sure that's but amadero yeah. says to him you don't understand auroran psychology aurorans consider <laughs> auroran robots to be aurorans and they would rather have auroran robots with no people than having earth people 
And okay, I can sort of get that. I, can get, I mean, not that I think it makes sense, but I can certainly certainly see that kind of bigotry, right? As being you know where where it goes to this insane reductio ad absurdum, where you know like we don't even care if there are any people as long as there aren't any Earth people there. That yeah, but, strikes me as completely believable. Psychotic, yeah, but believable. Psychotic, but yeah, I, I still. You guys are right. The the whole thing of we have to send you maniform robots because they because if we just send regular robots, they will build us a world for regular robots. And it's like, no, you just give them orders. Exactly. It's like here are blueprints. <laughs> Here's what Aurora looks like. Go That's make right. that exactly. And they would be they would be bound to do that. And and of course, you know, that's the way Aurora was built, right? I mean, because they don't have humaniform robots. Mm-hmm. They have n- normal robots, which can build build houses. Uh, well, I Aurora. guess their point was that in yeah. taming Aurora, there was there was tremendous hardship oh, yeah. and loss of life. Right, right. And right. they don't want to go through that again. But yeah, basically, yeah, they, they built Aurora without humaniform robots. I mean, I can kind of, on the one hand, I mean, I, I, I think it is, completely bizarre that somebody that well-versed in robots would think this, but then, you know, this sort of psychotic or this psychosis that, 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 that takes over groups of people into thinking really absurd things. I mean, we see it all around us all the time. Oh yeah. Even more so today than even five years ago, especially today. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, God, I don't, I don't want to get political, but, no, I mean that's okay. Well, okay, let's let's not do 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 politics even, good, right? I mean, good. I would understand griefers. I, I'm sorry, I would understand flat earthers if there were grief if they were griefers. What's a griefer? A griefer is somebody who goes online and 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 says outrageous things in order to make people react. Oh, you know. So I mean, I I would I would. I would kind of get that, but they're not funny. They're, they don't seem to be trying to be funny. They seem to be absolutely sincere about this ridiculous thing. And it's nuts. I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you find one of those people, I don't think you have to dig very deep to start getting back into the same kind of conspiracy theories that are ultimately very racist anti-semitic the usual Mm. i I actually did meet a guy who started telling me all these things and i i didn't think he was serious but not only was he into flat earth theories and he didn't believe that gravity existed but he was also hugely pro-putin and like it, it, it it got very quickly it went from absurd theories of physics to all of the usual sort of mm-hmm. conspiracy theory stuff that that you might imagine. So, I think that there, that there's a suite of beliefs that a lot of these people seem oh, to have. Yeah, that, that, there's that no doubt about together. that. All you flat earthers out there in our audience, uh, <laughs> you can just look behind me. It's all flat. That That's right. is perfectly flat. <laughs> you know, I I don't think that there's any textual evidence uh, in this book to suggest that Aurora is not a f- flat. Right? Do we do, do we know for certain that 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 it's, it's a, actually riding? It's a it's a it's a flat disc riding on four elephants, and the elephants uh-huh. are standing on a turtle. <laughs> okay, but wouldn't wouldn't Bailey have seen that as he was watching the the the, the planet from space? So that that must have all been faked up for him. That's right. They faked yeah. that all up. <laughs> that was all. That was all a simulation. Come on, come on, Joseph, wake up. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but if it's that kind of craziness, maybe I could buy that. I mean, I could see, I could see that that type of social belief infecting a, an entire planet of people. Like we don't, we don't care if it's robots as long as it's Aurora and robots. That's all that matters to us. I, I could actually see people. Yeah, going, I mean, g- g- given that. given the ease by which you know uh, racism and 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 all kinds of discrimination just kind of keep coming back and recycled back. Like it's not hard to envision a future of that when, you know, planets are separated and there's no traffic back and people, you never in your life meet someone from earth and, and and to boot, you know, your, their biological differences to the point where you're, 
you're literally living hundreds of years as opposed to a normal earth lifespan. Like it, it, it seems built in, you know, just so easy to reactivate those atavistic mm. kind of racist yeah. impulses. And Bailey points out that the Aurorans do not really give equality to robots that in fact, you know, robots stand in niches, robots do all the dirty work. And Amadiro is somewhat dismissive of that. He does point out that Lige has become very attached to, to Daniil as a humaniform robot, that he seems to object very strongly to the way Daniil is treated, not as strongly to the way Giscard is treated. And he's actually right on with that. That that that's true. As we pointed out before, Elijah uh, slips right back into calling Giscard boy when he gets irritated with him. And you know, that that is an ongoing theme throughout all these books, this this whole relationship between human beings and robots and, and the analogs to racism. And, and yeah, what degree do what degree or another that they can they can pass, quote unquote. Right. Not to put too fine a point on it, but to put too fine a point on it. I mean, the whole subject of humaniform robots and why is it so difficult to make one? I've never fully understood. Mm. Like Asimov makes a big deal about how it has to do with facial expressions and all the little muscles, and that never that never struck me as that never rang true to me. You know, yeah, well, I always go ahead. No. Okay. It was interesting because a thing that I thought, and I'm not, I'm not really getting it this time, but a thing that I thought I learned from these books was the difference between a robot, you know, a particular difference between a robot and an Android. Cause they're making a very, you know, usually you encounter a humaniform robot in, in fiction and they refer to it as an Android. But, you know, androids traditionally weren't robotic. They were actually artificial biological human beings. And so I thought that, that um, I thought that Asimov was trying to tease that out. But I mean, maybe in the wrong direction, because building a robot and making it, it look and seem human is doesn't seem like nearly as well, it isn't nearly as big of a deal as figuring out how to grow artificial artificial biological humans mm. yeah, I yeah mean, and that also would, a lot go. of a lot of the hard work of making a humaniform robot is 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 making it act human giving it a human-like intelligence right and that's been done you know Giscard has a human-like intelligence he just doesn't have a human-like body and face yeah and despite even despite the fact that that Lige is still referring to Giscard as the simpler robot, the lesser robot. Yeah, I mean, he, he's starting to get the idea that there's something special about this Giscard, and yet he's not letting go of that kind of rhetoric at the same time. It's hard to give up your, your ingrained habits. Yep. No, that's absolutely true. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, as, as, as somebody who studied, again, studied computer science, I always thought like the hard part is not getting the robot to, to make a, a decent smile. Although... Although actually, <laughs> having seen some of the sort of uncanny valley things that I've seen, I, I guess it's actually a little harder than I may have given it credit for. But you know, to give a a robot or or a computer that sort of world awareness to me mm -hmm. was always the hard part. Mm -hmm. um, but to Asimov, it was the other stuff. It was the superficial things, and um, yeah, that never rang true to me. Yeah. I mean, at least there's a rationale. I, I mean, I don't know how, how well it holds up, but at least there's a rationale in this book that, you know, they want the room, the, or Fastov in particular wants the maniform robots to be as human as possible so that he can study their, you know, study their brain patterns. Because ultimately he's interested in, in understanding the human brain and, and that at least makes a certain amount of sense why the two would be different, but yeah, why you, why you couldn't build something that that certainly appeared humaniform in in all the superficial ways? That doesn't seem like that should be that big of a trick. I think about the droids in Star Wars. You know, who no matter what shape they have or what function they have, they're all sort of imbued with this human personality. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see why you couldn't do that. Although, of course, you know, Star Wars droids and their treatment is a whole other story that we have right. talked about before. But they're they are treated pretty terribly. Freedom for freedom for star wars droids yeah yeah and then there's ellie eddie the elevator from hitchhiker's <laughs> guide <laughs> did you ever see the there's a video of you know like in in the uk you 
they have these talking elevators and there's uh there's this concept of like you talk to the elevator and tell it where you want to go and these two scotsmen get on an elevator <laughs> and it can't understand them they can't make it work and they're just you know getting outraged it it's funnier when you actually see the thing when you hear mm. me describe it the humaniform elevator yeah it's also the doors isn't it it's like the doors like like zaphod is trying to sneak into a, <laughs> yep. into a room and he tries to tell the door now don't say anything <laughs> don't make any noise like he tries to qualify the whole thing that's right i'm gonna sneak past you and you know and then it announces out loud well mr beeble rocks how did i do was that what you wanted you know, <laughs> yeah so for those of you who don't know who Zaphod Beeblebrox is, get off our podcast. Right? You're not welcome. <laughs> hey, we, we need all three of those guys. Let's not let's not be hasty. <laughs> well, I'll leave it as an exercise for the reader then. There you go. You can never have too many Hitchhiker's Guide references. I was actually in a meeting the other day and I was given a deadline for something and the person said to me, do you think you can meet that deadline? And I said, yes, I love deadlines, especially the whooshing sound they make as they go flying by, which is a Douglas <laughs> Adams quote, mm -hmm. which I was the only person in the room to understand because I am the oldest person in the room by so many years. And that's one of those things that makes you feel that. So when you, when you do uh... a reference, no one gets your reference. And you're like, that's because it's so many decades out of date. <laughs> The yeah, classics are lost on the youth of our day. They are. They are. <laughs> Thank you. Easy odd for that comment. Yeah, I, I still credit Douglas Adams with what I consider to be one of the funniest sentences ever written in English. Which is, you've we said demand, before. yeah, we demand rigidly defined areas right. of, <laughs> of doubt and uncertainty. <laughs> also, if you've ever read um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agencies, the bit about the electric monk is one of my favorite one of my favorite pieces of writing. He was great, and he died young. Oh, he did. As did Terry Pratchett. Mm -hmm. Although a little, I think he was Terry Pratchett lived to be about sixty five, but whatever. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. So one of the great moments of my life was actually getting myself off my butt one day and going to see Terry Pratchett at a book signing. Ah. because it's the type of thing i never did you know I, I just never like i was always so lazy like oh this guy's coming yeah yeah i i should go see him but i'm you know too lazy but i actually went and saw terry pratchett and he was fantastic by the way mm. he was just beginning to show the simpsons the symptoms of early onset alzheimer's mm. disease mm. i may have told the story before but i'm going to tell it again anyway <laughs> we all sat down in this room and they told us before he came out that he was only going to speak for a few minutes. He wasn't going to take any questions and he would only sign a few books. So if we really wanted a signed book, we should leave now, go downstairs because it was a two level Barnes and Noble in New York city. And there were a bunch of signed books by the, by the register. We should take one of those and go because we were going to be very disappointed by this, by this appearance by him. And he gets up there. He talked for 45 minutes about how, like he couldn't remember how to tie his tie anymore, which is why he eventually went to a neurologist. Uh, but he could remember all these advertising jingles from when he was a child. And he kind of was asking the question, why do I have all this useless stuff cluttering up my brain? And I can't remember how to tie a tie. Um, he spoke for 45 minutes. Then he took questions from the audience, literally until the audience ran out of questions, mm, which is mm. amazing. And then he signed everyone's book and he had like a little conversation with every single person on the line, mm. which meant the line took forever. Right. But I wasn't going to leave. And I had like a nice little conversation with him. You know, when I finally got to the front of the line, I was like, this is just great. This is, this is a guy who gets what having fans means. Yeah. I, it's really, it's really amazing when you have someone who does have that level of fame and is yet so generous with their mm -hmm. fans. Um, I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. No, one of my regrets in life, as I, I think I've mentioned this before, I, I saw Douglas Adams, uh, live promoting uh mostly harmless and i didn't get in the damn line to get a book signed and i don't know what the hell was wrong with me you know those lines can be very long <laughs> it's true <laughs> but yeah i was once i realized what he was doing that he was really having a conversation with everyone not just a kind of a hello mm -hmm. i thought I'm, I'm getting my conversation <laughs> <laughs> no matter how long it takes i am getting my conversation i remember kurt vonnegut 
coming to Carnegie Mellon when I was a student there. Yes. And he had just written a book called Galapagos. And the story of Galapagos is that human beings are on the Galapagos Islands. There's some sort of disaster that wipes out the entire population of the world, except for the people on the Galapagos. So they're the last human beings left. And eventually they evolve into sort of dolphins, like they, they lose their thumbs, they, they have fins, and they become a much more harmless version of humanity. And the author is obviously very approving of that and thinks this would be great if human beings could just like be more like dolphins. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very kind of anti-technological story. And he comes to Carnegie Mellon. And of course, all of these young engineering students love Kurt Vonnegut because it's the type of thing you do when you're a young engineering student. And he delivered a speech that was highly, highly critical of us sitting there in the room and like what we were about to do with our lives. Like you are going to go work for defense contractors and you people are the problem. And the crowd like ate it up. I mean, he was absolutely <laughs> devastating to us. And I'm sitting there going, do you hear, do you hear what he's saying? <laughs> like, do we have any dignity? No, no, we love Kurt Vonnegut. He's Kurt Vonnegut. We don't care. And, and that was, that was an interesting experience mm -hmm. to be absolutely roasted by this guy. And he was right, of course, mm -hmm. about what most of us were going to wind up doing with ourselves. So do you think that we should uh, give that kind of speech to our audiences when, when we go on tour promoting our bestseller book, uh, the the inside story of the stars. Yes, podcast. we should totally roast our audience. What are you doing sitting around listening to podcasts? You should be out <laughs> making your own podcast. Or or why aren't you listening to better podcasts? Yeah. yeah. <gasps> better podcasts. There are no better podcasts. Well, if we can loop back to Asimov here. <laughs> Who? Asimov? What? Yeah. Well, the, what? Um, Who? So, so I have... Uh, I have two things that were the, 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 that I'm pondering about this section. Okay. One is, you know, they, they talk about how hard it is to give give robots really proper orders that would, you know, that that, that are, are hard to break down. I mean, every time we see a roboticist giving robots orders, they just seem more blustery than everybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I missing something? I don't think so. No, I, I I was surprised that, for example, when Amadiro hears the storm but pretends he doesn't, right. and then he tells Giscard not to, and, and and Elijah, instead of turning around and going, tell me what's going on, right? he just kind of gives up and says, well, there's no way I can compete with a roboticist for right. giving orders. And and you're absolutely right. I'm sitting here thinking, how hard would it be? Just stop everybody and go, wait a minute, Giscard, I absolutely insist. I yep. order you to tell me what's going on. And how could Amadiro stop that? Giscard is already under very strong orders to, to take care of Elijah and protect him. So yeah, that didn't, you know, I, I noticed that too. That did not ring true. So sometimes you know, you just see these things, which I think are just in aid of the story. And oh, that's and, true. Are not necessarily logical. Well, what else were you pondering? Well, so the other thing I was pondering is that, um, yeah, because there's so much stuff that is explained over and over in so much detail. But then, you know, we get to this thing where Bailey has the epiphany that it's really Daniel that's important and it's not him. Because, you know, I mean, obviously, Fast Off would want to hear, or it would want to get Daniel and, you know, take Amadiro, him apart. You mean. Uh, Amadiro, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Amadiro. I would want to, you know, take them apart or study them and figure out how to build humaniform robots because it's so, but that is never, that is never spelled out. And it's odd to me that Asimov didn't spell that out because everything is spelled out. And so I'm sort of wondering if I'm missing something there. I don't think you're missing anything. And I think this subject does come up again in the final section uh, as to what it is that Amadeiro is really doing which does involve Daniil and humaniform robots. Yeah, I would have thought actually that if the whole purpose of that robotics institute is to build a humaniform robot, and there's only one left. Yeah, you, you wouldn't send the humaniform robot, exactly. especially with the third law. You would not send him there. You would definitely not send him there. You would say, look, you, Giscard, take a different robot. Leave Daniil at home if you're going to go to anywhere near Amadiro. So I would people make mistakes. Let's let's give them that. They make that that was a mistake. Fair enough. I I also think Amadiro had Daniil in the building with him. 
it doesn't seem very creative of me that he had to send Elijah out into the storm to get him disabled. Like, like, couldn't he have used one of like fast offs fake outdoor rooms or something and like shove Elijah in there and like whip up a storm? I, I don't know. It's just like, like, it seems very, it doesn't seem like a very good plan to me. It relies on too many things going right all at once. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I I don't think it's the plan that any normal human would come up with. <laughs> but then we we've already established he's not a normal human. He's an Aurora. That's right. He's a psychotic Aurora. So <laughs> who knows? Who knows what these people are capable of doing? I guess that's it. Okay, one more thing to throw out real quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because in in this section, I became palpably aware. I mean, and it's true. I think of all three of these novels, but I became palpably aware that you know the story completely follows. I mean nothing happened you know we see nothing except what's happening immediately around bailey right i mean the story just follows bailey everything else is off screen right otherwise they you know because they, they, he could have easily written a chapter of of you know uh daniel and giscard trying to get to you know get back to fast offs. but in that case it, it, it's curious why not write it in the first person hmm interesting you know, more, more sort of dashiell hammett uh, Dashiell Hammett or well Asimov or not Asimov uh, Heinlein used that to really good effect in a lot of his novels you know Double Star during the summer Puppet Masters all written in first person so nothing in the main sequence of these novels Foundation Galactic Empire is first person right we no. have uh, some of the robot stories are it seems to be something he does pretty rarely though yeah that's true that's true, but in the foundation, you get different scenes with different characters at different times. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't, yeah. I don't think there's any story, and I, I can't think of any stories in the foundation where it just stays centered around one character through the entire, through the entire story or novel or what have you. You're right, and maybe it just wasn't his style to do that. He just, just, just chose not to do that. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, I think the only the only way to get an answer for that right now is a seance because well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> okay, let's do but it again. You know, it, do but, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, but I guess I guess the core is why not have some scenes that don't have Elijah in them? Again, yeah, I mean, I just, perfectly good point. I yeah. mean, there are throughout the these robot mysteries, uh, as far as I can remember, there are no scenes. Yeah, I think that's right without Elijah. So it's as close as Asimov comes to first person as, as you can uh, well, imagine. Uh, Robots and Empire will get plenty of uh, Daniel Giscard dialogue without... Right, without, we won't really get any. Yeah. That's true. But There'll we know a lot of scenes without Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being that he's been dead for hundreds of years. Right, exactly. Oh, sorry, spoiler hundreds, alert. <laughs> long, long time. Yeah, yeah. It, does, it does skip ahead into the future. It's an interesting question, which I don't think I don't think we're gonna we're gonna get answered. Do we have any any comments on the relationship between Elijah and Gladia, or is that just too embarrassing to have any comments about? Um, you know, I I was I was a little relieved. Like in my memory of the sex scene, he was basically still unconscious from the <laughs> from the from the being out of the storm, and she and and in my memory, she was basically raping him. Um, but but as it turns out, I was delighted that he kind of came around and was sensible and have a dialogue. And then he goes back to sleep and then and then she comes and and uh, has a night of passion with him. So, yeah, I, I think it was that pretty was, mutual. That was, that was that was that was relief because, you know, Asimov isn't always uh, the best on such issues. And that is true. I'm glad I was just relieved that it was not as problematic as I read. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Although, let's be fair. If they were to be problematic about that that uh, that issue, it would have played out in a very opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think if you imagine a male character visiting a female character who has been through as much as Elijah was and is in that condition, yeah. I think it would be very hard to then say, "Well, you know, she kind of she 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 consented. She was into it." Yeah, I mean that is a good point. There, are, there are some consent issues there, considering that he was probably half out of his mind still. I mean, we know that he was attracted to her, sure, but 
I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's. I don't want to nitpick too much. Yeah, fair enough. <sighs> you know, like, can I, I? I need to complain. Like this, this oh, complain. This, this it, it's not completely on topic, but this whole reading, like, it, it gave me so many different earworms over the past couple of weeks. Like this scene, I just could not get Marvin Gaye's sexual healing out of my mind. <laughs> So this section here was going to be a hilariously placed clip of Marvin Gaye's sexual healing. But amazingly, this podcast that makes no money and offends nobody, I hope, was hit with some kind of copyright thing. So we had to take it out. But just imagine Marvin Gaye singing a little excerpt from sexual healing right here. And then before, you know, uh, like in the in the 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 storm. You know, of course, I'm I'm hearing Bohemian Rhapsody, like thunder and lightning, very, very frightening. Once again, use your imagination. Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And uh and, and the whole dialogue with Amadiro, you know, honestly, I, I said it to the tune of Rock Me Amadeus. Editor's note, I could not get any clips of any Falco songs. So neither here nor a little bit ahead are you going to hear any. Sorry. But uh, just with Amadero. <laughs> so like this, this whole, these chapters were driving me fucking bananas uh, these weeks. And I'm, I'm hoping that the last chapters of the book will have no clear auditory references. Yeah, I think you're probably safe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know the the whole storm thing. I think you would you would have been better off imagining "Gimme Shelter." I'm sure hearing the Rolling Stones playing "Gimme Shelter" would be a lot more interesting than hearing this little disclaimer. But this is the world we live in. So again, I'm going to have to ask you: use your imagination and imagine Mick Jagger and the boys doing "Gimme Shelter." Yeah, yeah. Gimme Shelter. Well, there we great. go. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Now I'll. <laughs> Okay, but that's a great maybe, sign. If you got a good earworm, that's at least something. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> during the scenes with the chairman, you know, you could be thinking of Der Commissar or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. That, that. <laughs> Remind me not to start a music podcast with you guys. <laughs> It'd be fun. Well, I just I'm just trying have, to put it. I just may have to tweet song titles at you for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> like really bad ones you know well on that note i think we might be done here i think so so next time we're going to wrap this story up we're going to find out if elijah on solving the crime actually tells anyone what the solution is uh, <laughs> whether anyone's brought to justice whether earth is destroyed by the aurorans who knows so we have that to look forward to We'll find that out with with appropriate musical accompaniment. Appropriate. I'm definitely going to have to add some musical accompaniment to the podcast. Oh Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Let's see if we can get a get a get a license for any of those songs. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, think you can do fair use for small snippets, though. You know, <laughs> you don't have to worry about licensing. Okay. <laughs> then let's fair use the hell out of those. Okay. There you go. All right then. Yeah, I mean, if if if, it, if this were against the fall of night or the city in the stars, I think nine oh five by the Who is a would be an excellent companion piece. But we're going to get into Joseph's serious musical taste now. <laughs> well, Joseph, you should make a playlist for us for for next time. And uh, on that note, I think I'm going to go get some sleep. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Good night. Good night, gentlemen. Good night all. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.